Hello, and welcome to Wicked Wednesdays, your weekly podcast about sex and sexuality with an emphasis on kink and BDSM relationships. We also talk quite a bit about poly relationships. This is a continuation of our BDSM 101 series, and today we're going to talk about the nature of submissiveness. I'm doing a slight break in format because I usually give these off the cuff. I make some notes and then I talk to the camera for an hour. And I have not been happy with the quality of those recordings. I do say a lot of good things and what's on my mind, but I tend to ramble and I tend to get off on tangents. So I've actually scripted this and we're going to give this a try. I think this will cut down on the editing process. I spent about eight hours producing last week's podcast, so I'm hoping to reduce that significantly. So without further ado, what does it mean to be a submissive? Here in the beginning, I want to state that everything I'm going to say about submission and these submissive types falls on a spectrum. Few things in the world are strictly black and white. If you look at a distribution graph, the vast majority of the population will fall in the middle, the high part of the bell. As you move out to the left and right extremes of that bell curve, you have a much smaller percentage of the population represented. Whether it's intelligence, height and weight, income, or almost any other variable, the bulk of the population will be average, in the center of the bell curve, and then you have the outliers. If the average American woman is five foot five, that's where the bulk of that graph will be. That's the dead center. A lot of women will be five six or five four, but as you move out from the center of that bell curve, the numbers of the population represented become smaller. As you get to the extremes of the bell curve, on the far right and left, you find very few women under five feet tall and very few women over six feet tall. They exist, of course, but only 1% of American women are over six feet tall and only about 2% of American women are under five feet tall. The population that you plug into your distribution chart matters, of course. If you only include women pro basketball teams, you will find a much higher percentage of women who are over six feet tall. But even in that population, there will still be the classic bell curve distribution, with the bulk of athletes being represented in the center and a few outliers being exceptionally tall or short. That's just how statistics work. The same thing is true for dominance and submission as personality traits in people. If you place fully dominant on one side of the graph and fully submissive on the other, the bulk of the population will fall in the center. They have dominant traits and submissive traits, with very few people represented at the extremes. I believe that is where a lot of the misconceptions about dominant and submissive play lie. If someone is labeled as submissive, somehow they are expected to always be submissive or completely submissive all the time. And the same is true of dominant personality traits. And that's just not how people work. It will be just as simplistic as saying that you are a happy person or a sad person. Most of us experience both as we fall on the spectrum of happiness and sadness. Some days we're happy and some days we're sad. And even during parts of the day, we may be happy or sad. Vanishingly few people are represented by I'm always sad or I am always happy. So as I talk about submissiveness today and the types of submissiveness, keep in mind that I'm always speaking about a spectrum. People are complex creatures and none of these submissive types or being submissive in general is an absolute. You can be a combination of these submissive types just as you can be a combination of dominant and submissive. And that can vary day to day or at different times in your life. 
So what does it mean to be submissive? Generally, a person who identifies as submissive would fall to the left or the submissive side of that distribution graph, meaning that they have more submissive traits than they have dominant traits. That doesn't mean that someone who is more to the right side of the dominant submissive graph can't be a submissive or cannot choose to be submissive sometimes. I know a lot of dominant people who in their day-to-day -day life, whether it be at work or just in their general personality, are dominant. They're very self-actuated. They may have a leadership role where they work, for example, but they also enjoy being a submissive, and that's not a contradiction in terms. If you spend all day being in charge of other people, it can be very relaxing and cathartic and fulfilling to let somebody else be in charge or to let somebody else make the decisions so that you can relax and be a follower sometimes. I do like to use the analogy of leader and follower in the DS sense, because to me that's very much what it is. Being a follower doesn't mean that you're not capable of taking care of yourself, and being a leader doesn't preclude you from being led or following direction. Only at the very far extremes of the chart, the true outliers are completely dominant or completely submissive and they either cannot make decisions for themselves or they are completely unable to follow direction. I've spoken about this before in an earlier podcast, that being submissive is generally disparaged, especially in American culture where we put such a high value on being type A and being a leader and being an alpha, forgetting that most people are a combination of these things and very few people are outliers. We can't all be type A, we are not all leaders. A team doesn't work well if everybody is vying for control and nobody takes direction and nobody is willing to work with each other. These dominant and submissive personality traits are very much a feeling. It's how do these roles make you feel? Does it feel more comfortable for you to lead or does it feel more comfortable for you to follow? If you identify as a submissive, if you feel submissive, it means you generally enjoy being directed. It is less stressful for you if somebody else makes the decisions. Depending on where you fall on the dominant submissive chart will depend on how much of your life and how much of your decision making you want to entrust to somebody else. That doesn't mean that you have to just let anybody tell you what to do. Most of the submissive people that I know like being directed, but they like being directed by somebody that they trust and that they respect. Where you fit on the dominant submissive chart in large part will inform what kind of submissive you are. But it can also just be a general part of your personality, your life experience, or the level of play. And you often have to experiment to see where you fit and what makes you feel good. So, why submission? At its most basic, it's what makes you feel good. A submissive person will feel comfortable with a more dominant person leading them. In BDSM, they are often very clearly defined roles. The person is dominant and this person is submissive, cut and dry. But the dynamic of the leader and the follower is true in almost all relationships we have in life. Even close long-term friendships among equals or peers, someone will tend to be the more dominant personality and the other will be the more submissive. And that doesn't mean that they have a power exchange relationship where one person is in charge. It could just be that one of them is the one that organizes the barbecue and the other is the one that shows up and helps out. We fall into these roles very naturally 
without having to have a discussion or a negotiated contract, we just tend to assume the role that feels comfortable to us. In BDSM play, we're taking those natural personality traits and pushing them. Sometimes pushing them to extremes. For someone who is naturally submissive, having that submission pushed to an extreme degree can be very pleasurable, exciting, and fulfilling. Finally, the roles that we play in BDSM don't always follow our natural inclinations. Sometimes in BDSM, the transgressive nature of the play is what is exciting. You're familiar with the stereotype of the high-powered executive CEO who hires a professional dominatrix to tie them up and paddle them. It is exciting and fulfilling to them exactly because it goes against the grain of what they're used to and who they are. It's very exciting for them to surrender all control and be dominated by somebody, even though they would not themselves identify as a submissive. The transgressive nature of the play is their kink. And for some naturally submissive people, they can get a thrill and fulfillment out of taking a dominant role in BDSM play. I'll be addressing some of the more simple styles of submission and some of the more elaborate styles, but I reject the notion that there's a hierarchy of these roles. I don't feel that being an alpha submissive is somehow better than being a brat or a bondage bottom or doing bedroom submission. Also, as usual, note that these are my definitions from my experience and my understanding of the scene. Other people may have very different definitions for these submissive types or use completely different terminology altogether. There's no international governing body of BDSM, so a lot of this comes down to your personal preference and experience. The different types of submissive play. Submissive or bottom is the general term that all other roles will fall underneath. And it's not necessary to have a subcategory that defines your play. You may just be a submissive. You don't have to have a specific role to play to take part in the BDSM scene. A romantic or bedroom submissive. This is a very common style of BDSM play. A romantic or bedroom submissive is generally interested in the erotic style of BDSM play that only happens in the bedroom. By its nature, romantic or bedroom play is limited and episodic. A bedroom submissive may not do any other sort of play outside of the bedroom or their day-to-day -day life, but in the bedroom they enjoy being submissive in erotic and sexual situations. The type of play they engage in is not necessarily limited. It could be discipline play, or bondage play, or impact play. Really, any style of BDSM play, though it would be unusual for them to incorporate some of the more extreme elements and apparatus found in other styles of play. Being a bedroom submissive can be as simple as the person doesn't like to initiate sex, and they feel more comfortable if their partner initiates sex, and they want their partner to lead that sexual encounter. They don't feel comfortable being in control in those erotic situations. And a lot of people fall into that category. You know, they wouldn't necessarily consider themselves part of the BDSM scene. They just naturally have a more submissive nature and it may only manifest itself in the bedroom. That is a basic form of bedroom submissive, but it can go all the way up the scale to some fairly intense forms of BDSM, but it's only practiced in that romantic or bedroom setting. Romantic and bedroom submissiveness is a way that many ordinary vanilla couples may spice up their sex life. 
and they may not take that to the extent of having a formal dominant and submissive relationship. Bedroom-only dominant-submissive play can sometimes be the entryway into more formal or elaborate play, or it may not. It really depends on the couple and what they enjoy. It may be plenty for them to use handcuffs and blindfolds, and that's all the extra thrill they're looking for. Other couples, they start out doing that, and they end up, you know, fully into the scene and having fully developed kink, BDSM, and dominant-submissive relationships. A bondage bottom, or a rope bottom, is someone who enjoys being tied up, having their freedom of movement constrained in some way. This could be very simple, having their hands tied together, and moving towards the more elaborate with full body rope and even suspension bondage. Being a bondage bottom more generally encompasses all aspects of being constrained, whether that's handcuffed to a bed, tied up with rope, suspension bondage, hard bondage like being attached to some sort of apparatus like a St. Andrew's cross. The St. Andrew's cross is the X-shaped cross that is usually upright. They may be placed in stocks or other bondage framework. Sometimes very elaborate types of bondage where the person is completely vacuum sealed to a hard surface with only a straw to breathe through. The bondage part of BDSM can take on so many different forms and variations and is also frequently combined with other types of play. Being a rope or bondage bottom can be the entirety of someone's submissive experience. That is, they don't do any other submissive play with a dominant other than being tied up. They are into the tying. That is their kink. Or it can just be one aspect of their play. Being tied up while paddled would combine bondage play and impact play. Being a rope or bondage bottom can also just be one aspect of their overall submissive nature. They can be a brat and they can also enjoy rope play. Being a bondage bottom can have erotic elements where the submissive person enjoys having sex or other intimate stimulation while they are bound or tied up. But that may not be part of it at all for them. Rope and bondage can be done with your clothes on. And frequently, especially in public play, you'll see people being tied up performatively. Whether that's with simple bondage techniques, you know, hands tied, arms tied, legs tied, or much more elaborate types of bondage that include suspension bondage, for example. Someone being tied and then suspended off the ground. Sometimes this is done as shibari or the Japanese art of rope tying which has very specific types of knot work and patterns and is practiced in sort of a formal and artistic way. Or it can be completely free form. The performative style of bondage can be very beautiful to watch. And both the person being tied, the rope bottom, and the person tying, the rigor, are performing in that sense. It's much like watching someone paint a work of art. Obviously this is and can be done in private, but you will often see performative rope bondage done at a public BDSM gathering. And sometimes the models are naked, sometimes they have clothes on, sometimes they're wearing a spandex suit. That doesn't really affect the art of tying in and of itself. That particular art of tying may be someone's entire experience in the BDSM world. They may not do dominant and submissive play, they may enjoy being tied, and they may enjoy being tied performatively. You know, for them, part of that thrill would be a sort of exhibitionism. And for the person doing the tying, when you are tying in front of an audience, you're very conscious of your movement and the performative aspects of that tying. So that in and of itself can be a thrill. So I, I know people who, they do performative bondage tying. 
But that's it. They don't have any other DS role in their life or any other BDSM thing that they do. So again, as we go through this series, you're going to find a wealth of ways to do this. It's a very open community. It is a very vast and varied community. You know, be very careful about saying there's a right and wrong way to do things. And I know that I often do. When I'm speaking of right and wrong, it really comes down to harm to another person that they're not wanting. Mental and physical harm that goes outside of the games that we play. Why bondage? What is the thrill of it? What's the kink behind that? As always in BDSM, it's because it is fulfilling. Not necessarily because it feels good. Being a bondage bottom can be something that makes the submissive feel secure. They enjoy the feeling of being controlled. And I've had bondage bottoms who really like the feeling of being tied very closely and having a lot of constraint put upon them. They have often likened it to being hugged all over their body. For other bondage bottoms, they don't like the feeling of being constrained. And that is what's thrilling to them. Being constrained makes them feel anxious and excited, and they like that feeling of not being in control. They like the feeling of not being able to move because it adds an element of danger that is very thrilling for them. Finally, and while this can seem counterintuitive, being placed in bondage can be very freeing. In a lot of the more extreme stimulation play, an impact play, electrostimulation for example, if you are free to move, you have to dedicate part of your awareness to not flailing around and potentially hurting yourself or the people around you. It can be very difficult to hold still while you're being paddled, for example, because your natural inclination is to escape and move away from that stimulation. Being tightly bound or constrained allows the submissive to experience the full extent of that stimulation without having to be conscious about controlling their body. They can surrender fully to that stimulation, and that can allow some people to sink into a very deep and fulfilling subspace, whereas if they were concerned about holding still and not thrashing about, for example, that would prevent them from entering that subspace. So that's how something that is truly constraining can actually free you to experience something more deeply. In my personal play, I often use what I call self-bondage, meaning I command the submissive to be still, and then I provide them stimulation that makes that very difficult. This falls into the discipline style of play that I practice, where I'm telling somebody not to move, and then I'm giving them stimulation and reason to want to move, and that heightens the level of play that we're doing. It heightens the stakes for them. This can also be accomplished by placing the submissive in a difficult or uncomfortable position and then commanding them to be still. Then it becomes a more endurance type of bondage play where they're fighting against their own nature to want to move. And in that struggle, they achieve submission. They achieve a subspace that can't be accomplished by other forms of stimulation. So that wraps up the first two types of submissive styles that I wanted to talk about, and I have a whole list of them. We're going to get into all of them, at least as many as I can imagine, and I've got a fairly decent imagination. And also what's, you know, more commonly understood as brat play, you know, smart mouth masochist play, pain slut play. I do have some exciting news on the business front, and that is I finally built a website. 
something that I obviously should have done four years ago. And honestly, I cannot give you a good reason why I put it off. I did expect it to be expensive and it's, it's not cheap. There is an outlay for buying the domains if you need to buy them and maintaining the website month to month. When I started the Patreon, that was one of my goals. I was hoping that I could use the Patreon to fund this podcast and the hosting of this podcast, which is expensive, and to build a website. I learned that after I built the website, I chose a provider that allows me to host the podcast on the website. So that's cool. That's going to save me money down the road. I worked very hard to make sure I did the RSS feed uplink correctly. However, if you don't hear this podcast or if this podcast doesn't show up in your feed next week, please navigate to my website, www.wickedfellow.com. And you can find all the podcasts there, links to Apple Podcasts, links to Spotify, etc. It's possible that once I shut down my original podcasting website, it is possible that when I shut that down, the links will break. And so you will no longer get this in your subscription feed. However, I do have it set up on Apple Podcasts from my website now. So in the event that you don't see this next week, head over to Apple Podcasts, search me out, and reestablish that link. Resubscribe if you have to. I'm very excited about the website. Um, it took a lot of work. I spent about two days working very solidly and consistently to learn how to build a website, make it look like I wanted it to, and then incorporate all of the podcasts and all of our links and all of our material. This will allow me to have much more extensive show notes, for example. I'm going to have a full transcript of the lesson from today, as well as links to other information that you can use, etc. That will be available at the link at the bottom of the podcast and the bottom of the video cast on YouTube. You can always navigate over to our site now, which I am, you know, the proud parent of a brand new baby site. Um, that website will allow us to do a lot of cool stuff, hopefully, including getting some sponsors. I have been in contact with a couple of um, sex toy manufacturers that are interested in sponsoring our content. So because I actually care, I want to make sure that I'm sponsoring something or being sponsored by something that I believe in. You know, for example, when Bunny and I did a video for Lulu, the vibrator company, we wanted to make sure that we actually enjoyed those products. So, you know, we received them, we tried them out. We're like, yeah, this is a good product. We have no problem, you know, endorsing this product. And the same is true with the companies that I'm currently in talks with. I want to make sure that if I am sponsored by somebody or I'm, you know, shilling for a company that I believe in it. So you won't see anything that I think is junk or that I think is not well made, etc. I'm perfectly happy to do sponsorships with other kink sites or BDSM gear manufacturers, anything. I'm perfectly happy to have a spot for them. That will make it much easier for me to produce this podcast, to produce the video cast, and to keep this, you know, ball rolling. Hopefully that will generate some more income for us because last month was extremely difficult. Uh, we lost the middle of the month. And when we came back, our views were very low and our revenue was correspondingly low. So last month was a tough one. And of course, that means that this month is the tough one because you get paid a month late, meaning that the revenues that I receive this month will be from what happened last month. You know, tips and tricks for people that are getting into this business or that are in this business already, make a website. Don't be like me and wait four years to make one because while it was difficult, it has already started paying off. You know, when you talk to sponsors, 
the first thing they ask you is what is your website? You know, they don't want to sponsor you unless they can see that you are an established thing. And just telling them that you're on Pornhub is not enough. They want you to have a standalone website where they could perhaps run a banner ad or where they can get analytics saying how many people come to your site, how many people stay on your site, etc. Go check out our stuff on all the different places you can find it. Pornhub, YouTube, Xvids, Xhamster, iTunes Music, Spotify. Other ways you can support us are sending me your thoughts and questions about this series. This episode was informed largely by questions I received from the last episode and the previous request I put out for help. You know, I really want this to be something you can turn to for good information and good advice. So in order to do that, I need your feedback and your thoughts. You know, send them to me privately at hiswickedways at gmail.com. You can also find all of our contact links on our website. Contact me on Instagram or Twitter or YouTube or wherever feels comfortable for you. If you want to send in a question, if you want to send an audio file in, you know, record yourself into your phone and email it to me. That would be great. I would love to include that as part of our Q&A session or is even leading into a section on this BDSM 101. I would also be very interested in having contributors to this. You know, for example, I'm a heterosexual guy. So my experience in the LGBTQ BDSM scene is very limited. You know, I certainly have friends, but that's not my experience. And so I'm hesitant to talk about the dynamics involved in that third hand. You know, I would just be reading what other people have written about it and saying, well, so-and-so says this. Since it's not my experience, I don't want to dive too deeply into it because it's not really my lane. It's not my place. And I don't want to try to explain to someone how to have a successful, healthy, gay BDSM relationship when that's not what I know. You know, I'm sure that a lot of the dynamics are the same. You know, it's not alien. But I'm sure there's also differences that I'm just unaware of that I don't know about. I don't want any of my LGBTQ plus fans to feel left out or that I'm ignoring them. You know, you're definitely part of my experience, but I don't have the knowledge base. I don't have the personal experience to speak articulately on that subject. So if that is your world, you know, if you are a kinkster and you're part of that scene, reach out to me and perhaps we can do an interview or perhaps you can get me in touch with someone who is a LGBTQ plus kink educator that would be interested in guesting on this podcast and vice versa. Because I don't want to leave anybody out of this discussion. I also don't want to pretend that I know more than I do. Because I just don't understand that part of the scene. As well as I understand my part of the scene. So yeah, if you're listening to this and that fits you. Or you know somebody that may be a good guest on this podcast. Please get us in touch. And I'd be happy to do that. Keep those questions coming. You know, I enjoy this. I'm looking forward to continuing this series. I have a lot to talk about. You know, today I only covered two aspects of submission, and there are a lot. So in the next episode, we're going to continue this discussion. We're going to talk about more different styles of submission and what makes a submissive relationship healthy and good for the people in it. So remember, consent is king. Please stay safe out there. Take good care of each other. And I will see you next week. <laughs>